Dear friends, last February we began our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, and we embarked, as I said back then, on this path of life, this path of life that our instructor in the Catechism is leading us down. And at the beginning, especially, I think you remember, it was a dark road. It was a road that preached to us of misery, our misery, and our misery as a result of our sin. And we had to pass through that road. That was necessary, wasn't it? By the law is the knowledge of sin. And by our knowledge of sin, we see our need for a Savior. But then I don't know if you noticed or not, my friends, but the last, say, uh, four or five weeks, it seems like we've been walking that road again. Only this time, not for ourselves, but in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he also had to walk that road. He also had to go down that path, not because of his own sin, but because he had taken upon himself the sin of his people. And he was going to make atonement for that sin. And the way to do that was for himself to walk that dark path, that same path that we walked. Only, of course, for us, it was sin that brought on the misery, that brought on our misery. But for him, it was our sin and our guilt which brought misery upon him. But you'll know that the last sermon that we had was the lowest point of Christ's suffering, his descent into hell. And we said that in the soul of Christ, not just in his body, but in the soul of Christ, all the weight of hell's torments came down upon him and crushed him. His descent into hell. Now, again, in the history of the Reformed churches, and actually, uh, we get this from the Lutherans. This is uh, something the Reformed have adopted from the Lutherans. So we're thankful to them for sharing it with us. Is this understanding of Christ's suffering and of his exaltation. So I put that, this is my own little diagram here, of the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation. So we have Christ uh, and, and this is known as the states, the states of Christ. His two states, his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. And so in that state of humiliation, he went down into the darkness. Again, this is the dark path that we went down. That's what I put on the outline there, down into the darkness, but then down into the darkness again by way of Jesus Christ in our place, going down into that darkness. He was born. And we study this, and we, we talk about this at Christmas time, don't we? That he was born with a very humble birth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a stable. He was, he was laid in a, 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 a feeding trough. A very humble birth. And then his life. My friends, think about the life of Christ. Why was it a humble life? Well, because the, 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 the God-man came under the law. He came under the law. And now that wouldn't normally be a humiliating thing, but remember, my friends, that he came under a broken law, as if he had broken it himself. He came under the broken covenant of works. Remember that it says in Genesis, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And Jesus Christ came under that broken covenant of works. He was made under the law, says Paul. And that was a point of humiliation for Jesus. That he came into this covenant, not as a covenant keeper, 
but as a covenant breaker. And again, never his own sin, but in the substitutionary place of his people who had broken that first covenant. So his life was a humiliating life. And of course, all the other privations and trials that Jesus, he had not a place whereupon to lay his head, it says. But then Jesus' trial before Pilate, what a humbling thing, my friends, that the king of the universe, the creator of all things, would come before a Roman governor and be sentenced to death. All the mockery that he endured. His crucifixion. We're going another step lower, aren't we? His crucifixion, the most shameful, horrible way to die in the Roman Empire that Roman ingenuity could invent. Crucifixion. And it was so shameful, you know, that no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified. Again, he was, he didn't just die, right? He was crucified. His death was a crucifixion. And then, as we spoke last time, this was some time ago already, but some time ago we talked about his descent into hell, when in the soul of Christ all the sufferings and torments of hell were poured out upon him. Well, then we come as low as we come. But this is the suffering of Christ by, way, uh, by, by uh, means of which he made atonement for the sins of his people. All that humiliation that he suffered, not for his own sins, but for ours. But now we begin the exaltation, the state of Christ's exaltation. And by the way, that word state there is used very, very intentionally. By, word, by the word state is meant uh, not just his situation in life, not just his condition, but it's talking about his state before God. You, you might think of uh, your state as a, a courtroom. If there was a person in this church who had committed a crime and you're on the run from the police, your state before the law is different than a person who had committed no crime. Or let's say that you commit a crime. You, know, you, 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 you run through a stop sign, right? And you're given a ticket. Your state before the law has now changed, hasn't it? You're guilty. You violated a traffic ordinance. But once you pay the fine, your state changes. Before the law, you are now an innocent, a free citizen, and you go your way, right? So the word state there is chosen very clearly. And Jesus in his state of humiliation, was in the courtroom of God. He was in a state of guilt. He was not right. And he had to suffer. And he had to endure all the punishment that the wrath of God would pour out upon him. And that's why we talk about Christ's state of humiliation. His state of humiliation by which he made atonement for the sins of his people. And now we come and talk about his exaltation, or his, the state of his exaltation, because now the law is satisfied. Now the law has nothing to say against Jesus or those who are one with him. The law is satisfied. And so now there can be a state of exaltation, where Jesus is going to rise out of the, the depth of suffering that he experienced. And step by step, he's going to come. So the state of Jesus' exaltation and it begins with the resurrection. And that's what we hope to consider this evening. Our question from the Heidelberg Catechism is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer given us is threefold. You can circle these first, a second, and a third. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Now, you might say this is Jesus overturning 
Adam. Adam brought us into a state of death. Under the covenant of works, under our covenant head of Adam, we came into death. But by Jesus' perfect righteousness, we share in that, and we have no more death. We are no longer subject to the penalty of death. That in the first place. Now in the second place, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. That will be the subject of this evening's sermon. That second one, so I'll say no more about that now. The third one, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. That's what we considered this morning. The last point this morning, right? That there is one resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection are one resurrection. Separated by time, yes. But as surely as the one rose, so surely will the others rise. Again, this is all, we're still in the Apostles' Creed. On that article, the third day he rose again from the dead. So, my friends, this then gives us a, a picture of the sufferings and of the exaltation of Christ. Now, this is a very useful way of thinking about the work of Jesus Christ, uh, because one of the mistakes that we can make is that we tend to focus just on the death of Christ as his sufferings. But when we see all the work of Christ represented under these two states of humiliation and of exaltation, we see the work of Christ in a larger scope, don't we? A larger breadth to it. That there is, his whole life was one of suffering. And yes, especially at the end of his life. And then after his death, his, the exaltation begins. But it's all the work of Christ. So I think it's a useful teaching tool to see the death of Christ and the, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ in this kind of, um, this way of looking at it, this kind of scheme of looking at what Christ has done for us. Well then, the sermon this evening, I would like to look at these four texts that I've put down on the outline here. And this is the point, my friends, which I would like to prove to you this evening. Only one point tonight. Only one point. We have the life of Jesus living within us. Now, that's the only thing I want to say about tonight. These four texts, in proof of this point, we have the life of Christ living within us. Again, the Catechism says, second, by his power, we too are raised to a new life. We too, because God raised Jesus from the dead, but by that resurrection and we join to Jesus, we too are already raised to a new life. So let's look at these texts then in Romans 6 and verse 4. Turn with me please to Romans 6 and verse 4 and let's look at these texts. Now in Romans 6 verse 4, I want to ask this text a question. For each of these texts, I have a question. By the way, that's a good way to read the Bible. Ask questions. Of the Bible. And Romans 6 and verse 4, I want to ask this question. What does Jesus' resurrection mean for me now? What does Jesus' resurrection mean to me now? So, Romans 6, verse 4. First of all, let me say a few words about Romans 6. Remember that Paul in Romans 6 is dealing with this objection, which he gives in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? After all, uh, God's grace abounds, the more, the bigger the sinner that he forgives, the bigger the sinner he saves, the more highly we see God's grace. Well then, the obvious corollary from that would be, well then let's sin as much as we can 
to magnify the grace of God, right? And of course, Paul rejects that. And he says, let's begin with verse 3. Verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And there, Paul, again, talking about that baptism of the Holy Spirit, which brings us into union with Christ. And he says that has, that has united us with him in his death, so that when Christ died, that was, in a sense, our death. That, everyone, you might say, already agrees on. Paul's already established that point. But now here's his point in verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now my friends, right there you have the point that I was just trying to make from that little chart that I gave you of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Because Paul is saying that Christ went down these steps of humiliation. He endured all the pains and the sufferings of, that God had punished him with. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. By the Holy Spirit's baptism, we are joined to Christ so that his death is our death. But it doesn't stop there, says Paul. It's not just into his death that we're buried. If we are joined to Jesus, then we died with him, yes. But if we are joined to Jesus, then we also will live with him. And just as Jesus died and was buried in the grave, but just as he also came up out of that grave, he rose from the dead. And remember what happens to Jesus happens to us. When we are joined to him by faith, then we die with him, but then we also rise with him. And so says Paul, uh, so that, and that's the critical there in verse 4, the middle of verse 4, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, don't miss the right side of that chart, says Paul. Yes, we are, we, 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 we are joined with Christ in his humiliation. But Paul says we are also joined with Christ in his exaltation. And therefore we have the life of Christ within us because we rose with him. Uh, we have the resurrection power of God within us as believers, says Paul. And that's, by the way, why it's foolish to talk about sinning as much as you want to magnify the grace of God. Because that very attitude shows that you never really were united with him in the first place. Because if you were united with him, you'd be united with him not just in his death. And praise God, we're united to him in his death. That's why we have our sins forgiven. But we're also united with him in his life, by which we're given a new life, and which we live in newness of life, as he says in verse 4, at the very end of verse 4. And Paul actually continues on this in all of Romans 6. He has much more to say about that. But basically, that's the subject that he has, that he's speaking of in that chapter. So what does Jesus' resurrection mean to me now? It means that I, may have, that I have died with Christ, but I also live with him. And that is not something, my friends, that will take place in the future, as we talked about this morning. That is something that takes place the moment a person believes the gospel and by the Holy Spirit is baptized into Jesus Christ, is joined with Jesus Christ. He becomes one with Christ. And my, my point then is that is something 
that means something for us now. That is a present reality in the life of every believer. We have died with him. We have risen with him. And I do not say we have died with him and we will rise with him. No, that's not, that's not what Paul says in Romans 6. We have died with him. We have risen with him. That is a present reality in the life of a believer. So what does Jesus' resurrection mean to me now? It is a present reality. Okay, moving on to, to Romans 8. What is the life of Jesus within me? What exactly does that mean when we say that the life of Jesus is within me? Remember, that's the point I'm trying to prove this evening. We have the life of Jesus living within us. Let's turn to Romans 8 and try to find an answer then to this question. What exactly do we mean when we say we have the life of Jesus within us? And I'm going to look at verse 11. I'm going to look at verse 11. Actually, let's back up to verse 9 so we can pick up the context here. The answer is in verse 11, but let's start with verse 9. Where Paul says, Romans 8 and verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then here's the answer to our question. But if the Spirit of him, that is, of Jesus, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, I'm sorry, the him there is, is God the Father. But if the Spirit of God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now there we have the answer to our question. What is the life of Jesus within me? Very simply put, my friends, it's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And verse 11 makes it clear that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, what God did to Jesus when he raised him to life, brought him out of the grave, in the same way God is going to do that to his people. Not in the future, but already. He gives life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of God already dwells within us. And it's the same spirit that God the Father sent to raise Jesus from the grave. We have the resurrection life of Jesus within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So what is the life of Jesus within me? It is the person of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, in the understanding of the apostles, that is almost the same thing as saying we have the life of Christ dwelling within us. Because the Spirit and Christ are, are so close. The next, the next text then, and the next question that we're going to ask Ephesians 2. And the question we're going to put to Ephesians 2 is this. What is God's purpose in giving me the life of Jesus? Now, we already know from Romans 6 that it was newness of life. And if you continued to read in Romans 6, you would see Paul expanding on that. But we'll go to Ephesians 2, and I'm going to look at verse 5. Verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
made us, that is, he made us alive together with Christ. There again, you see that we are made together, made alive together with Christ because we're so joined to him that when Christ came out of the grave, we came out of the grave. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many different times can the Apostle Paul say with him or in Christ or some similar expression? Right? In just a few verses, he said it so many times. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's in the ages to come. That's in the future. But now, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 is our answer. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we are his workmanship, dear friends. We are his workmanship, unless, uh, which the work that is referred to there is making us alive. By the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit being, being uh, poured out upon us, we are made alive. The life of Christ is within us, and the purpose created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the reason. This is the reason why God has given us the life of Christ so that we can do good, that we can be a force for good in our life to God's glory. Good works. Good works don't bring us into salvation. They flow from our salvation. And they come as a result of the life of Christ being within us. Being within us. We are raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places. Well, then let's move to Galatians 2. And this is the chapter that we read together. And in Galatians 2, we're going to ask this question. How close is this union with Jesus? We have the life of Christ within us. Again, why? Because we've suffered with him, and now we are also going to be glorified with him. And that has already begun. And we're asking this question. How close is this union with Jesus? And Paul gives us that answer in Galatians 2 and verse 20. And by the way, you always need to remember here that when Peter or when uh, Paul says this, remember he is speaking to the apostle Peter. Remember he's rebuking Peter for his inconsistency of behavior. Because Peter uh, withdrew from the Gentiles and from having meals with the Gentiles. Because he was worried about these people who had come from Jerusalem. And the pressure that they put on him, he caved under it. And now Paul's calling him out on it. And you can read the rest of what Paul says there. But near the end of Paul's rebuke, he says, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. There he's talking about that humiliation. But now here's the answer to our question. How close is that union? And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you hear that, my friends? Paul says that his own life, as it were, has, has gone away. Verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. 
How close is that union with Jesus Christ? How close is that union between the believer and Jesus Christ? This close, my friends, to the point where Paul will even say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. Now, Paul is not a mystic. He's not saying that his, his identity has been sort of swallowed up in Christ, and now it's actually Christ, that he's now part of the divine. Some mystics have, have gone to that a crazy extreme to say that we, we're actually God now. We actually have, you know, we're actually... Uh, in, in some sense, deity. No, no, no. Notice that he says, right, and he says in the same verse there, the life which I now live in the flesh, right, in this body, it's still me, but still there's this union, says Paul, between Jesus and myself that is so close that it's as if I no longer live, but Christ dwells within me. That's how close this union is. Well, my friends, we come then to my points of application as we think about this, this grand truth that the life of Christ is living within us. And the catechism, which said that by his power, we too, that is by God the Father's power, we too are already raised to a new life. Well, the first application point, my friends, I just want to bring back to your mind again what we considered this morning, is that this gives us, it gives every believer a certain hope of a future resurrection. What would happen to the life of Christ within us, my friends? Think about that. What would happen to the life of Christ that dwells in a believer if that believer died, went in the grave, and was never heard from again? Then, to speak almost blasphemously, the life of Christ would be extinguished. You understand me? then the life of Christ would, would, like a candle, get weaker and weaker until it finally was extinguished and it would go out. Who would dare say such a thing this evening, my friends? And that's why the life of Christ within us, so close is Paul's life and Christ's life. And if you're a believer this evening, so close is your life united with that of Christ that if you didn't rise, then it would be as if Christ died never to rise again. And that cannot ever be. And so again, this is something for your faith to take hold of, my friends. The life of Christ within me guarantees me a future resurrection. But again, we, taught, we spoke about that uh, this morning. I move then to my second application. This gives us then a challenge. This is definitely an encouraging truth, my friends. That's actually my, my third point. But there's a challenge here. Christians are by definition then. In other words, it is of the essence of a Christian that he has the life of Christ dwelling within him. It is of the essence of a Christian that he has risen with Christ. Not only has he died with Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, but he has risen with Christ to a newness of life. That means, my friends, and this is the challenge that comes to us, this is the point of self-examination that comes to us this evening, that if we don't have in our life that hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we don't have that holy breathing and desire for holiness in our life, then we cannot call ourselves Christians. You cannot talk about a four-sided triangle, right? It is of the essence of a triangle that it has three sides. Neither can you talk about a Christian who does not have this newness of life, 
Now, my friends, this is a point of self-examination for you. Not for your neighbor, not for the person sitting on the other side of church. Not for the person who may have offended you at some point in time. This is a, this is a point of self-examination for you. Have you risen with Christ? And is there that evidence in your life that I have risen with him? That newness of life, that I've left behind the oldness of life, that characterized the life of unbelievers. And again, you can go to Galatians 5, right? You can read about the fruits of, uh, uh, the, the, fruits of the Spirit, right? And also the works of, of, uh, the, of the works of the devil, the works of, of our own sin nature, right? You can, you can use that as a, as a measuring stick. But this is something that this text calls us to examine ourselves on this evening. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And I know how this goes, my friends. We begin to examine ourselves. And we never come out well, do we? We never come out well. We always come up short. But my friends, I want to say again what I just said before, and I want you to listen very carefully. I didn't say that if our life hasn't measured up to this measure of holiness, that if we haven't got to this point in our life, whatever that might be, then you must not think of yourself as a Christian. No, no. I said, I said, and I want to say it again, is there that hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is there that pursuit of it? That's the question I'm asking. That's the question I set before myself this, this, this evening and the question I put for you. Of course we haven't met. Of course we haven't reached that level of holiness that we would like to reach in our life. But the text is, is pressing and binding upon us this fact. That a change has happened in the life of a Christian. A new nature has been given him. The life of Christ is dwelling within him. The Holy, hear that? The Holy Spirit lives within him. And the Holy Spirit makes a difference in our life, my friends. It makes a difference. An unloving Christian, well, again, you might as well talk about hot ice, right? Or cold fire, or a four-sided triangle. It is a contradiction in terms. It cannot be. Newness of life. And I know after a, a point of self-examination like that, it's so discouraging, isn't it? It's so discouraging. That's why I rush on to my third point here, because there's encouragement. And here, my friends, I want you to think about also what our catechism has laid before us, that there's power there, power, right? The catechism, second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. You know, there's a church in Grand Rapids that has the most marvelous name. You know, the churches get all names now, right? It's kind of a thing now. These churches all have to have these very contemporary sounding names. Well, this one is just lovely. It's called Resurrection Life Church. I don't know if there's one in Kalamazoo or not. I haven't seen one, but it is a huge church in Grand Rapids, and I'm not endorsing all the theology of this church now, but I'm saying that name is lovely. And that name, my friends, is such an encouragement for you this, this evening. Because after that last point, we're left devastated, right? We see so little of that resurrection life within us. We see so little evidence that the Holy Spirit is within us.
But here comes the encouragement of the gospel, that there is a power, my friends, that there is a power, that there is the resurrection life power of Christ within us, within every Christian. And that power, my friends, enables us to overcome the powers of darkness within us. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, that's what we've been saying this evening, right? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. My friends, that's the encouragement I would give you this evening. That if you have been raised with Christ, recognize that power that lives within us. Recognize, my friends, the life of Christ, which is burning, and it can't ever be extinguished. Don't you believe that it ever can be extinguished? That candle, you might say, is burning within us. That life of Christ is within us. And it has a power, my friends, the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave, the same power that brought Lazarus out of the grave, the same power that gave that lame man this morning those two good legs, that same life-giving power dwells within us. And so, my friends, as you face Monday, as you face Tuesday, and all the challenges and all the temptations that press down upon you, you can, you can take your stand on the Word of God. I have the life of Christ dwelling within me. I'm going to seek the things that are above. My friends, a much better attitude than, say, on Monday morning to think, okay, no, I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps, right? I've got I to gotta live like a Christian, get out my list of do's and don'ts. And There's a place for do's and don'ts. Yes, certainly there is. But let's start on the right starting place, my friends. I have the life of Christ dwelling within me. How can I embrace the works of darkness? How can I embrace the things of this world when I have the Spirit of God within me? And so, my friends, I, I mean, and I think the text, I think God himself means for this text to be a challenge to us. Yes, we have to think, does my life show this newness of life? But don't leave off the encouragement that there is a resurrection life power within you. God doesn't say, okay, I've saved you. Now go out and live for me. No, no. God saves us, and he gives us his spirit to dwell within us, to empower us, to live a life that honors his holy name. That's why I'm not going to stand here tonight and say, you can do it. And yet I am going to stand here and say, you can do it. Not you so much. You understand my meaning now, right? But you in union with Christ. Now you have a power that is not your own. Now you can step out, my friends. Now you can step forward. Yes, you'll fail. But you can get back up every time. And you can call upon the name of the Lord. You can take your stand upon the scripture. And you can say, I've been raised up with Christ. I'm going to live for him. Let's start there, my friends. Let's not despair. You are from God, little children, says John. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And the closing verse I leave with you, because I live, says Jesus, because I live, you shall live also. A precious promise indeed.
Shall we pray? Lord, this is such a staggering truth for us to think about. That when we have walked down a path, Lord, where our catechism has taken us, and has shown us how deeply we have sinned, both in our fallen Adam, but also in our daily life, each sin a slap in your face, each sin nailing Jesus to the cross again. But then to hear, Lord, of what you have done in our place, suffering, but now also rising from the grave with a new life, a new life for us, a new life that burns within us, that life of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see it as believers this day and that we would take hold of it and know that there's a power there that can lead us in the right way and that can give us all the power we need to overcome the world because greater is he that is within us than the one that is within the world. Because you live, O Lord Jesus Christ, we can live also. And Lord, for those who do not know this resurrection power in their life, if there is there, if there is here one, O Lord, who is, who is not joined in that saving union with Christ, and who has not received this life, this Holy Spirit dwelling within him, or her, Lord, I pray that this hour, they would abandon such a life, and that they would come to the good life, the life that gives us hope and meaning, the life that gives us power, the life that also gives us a future hope of living and dwelling with our Savior forever and forever. Lord, please bless and keep us then. And make us to be good and faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ, fighting on in the power of the cross, fighting on in the power of the empty tomb. In your name, O Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's turn now and close our service by singing from number 529 in the Red Hymnal. We have two verses to sing here. Lord, lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness. Make thy way plain before my face. For it is thou, Lord, thou, Lord only, that makest me dwell in safety. The two verses of 529 in the Red Hymnal.
dear friends, I'm going to ex 